Amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 through chapter 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Well, for the last month and a half, we have been studying passage after passage of Scripture that is proclaiming to us the height and width and depth of God's love. God is love. God loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Jesus Christ is God revealing his love to us. On the cross, God inviting sinners to be forgiven and reconciled to God. And all of us have experienced God's love in our day-to-day life. If you've experienced God's love in your life, can you say amen? Amen. So we all know that God loves us. And yet, even faithful Christians sometimes 
find it very difficult understanding how the reality of our most painful life experiences could possibly be compatible with the bold claims that the Bible makes about God's love. To be a Christian is often to live in this tension. We believe God loves us, and yet we have stuff happen to us. We have questions that have remained unanswered for years or decades. We've heard the Bible say that God is able to work all things together for our good, but some of us have experienced evil so painful and traumatic that it's difficult to imagine what good could come of them. We have doubts. Even in the midst of faith, you can have doubt. And sometimes we even have complaints. The Bible itself acknowledges and to a certain degree even validates that experience. We always need to be reverent before God. And yet, how often do the Psalms teach us to pray, How long, O Lord? Why are you hiding your face from me? Why does my painful experience of life feel so different than what you have said about your love for me? There's much we could say about this, but here's what we're going to say today. There is going to come a time when we will have no more doubts and no more complaints. There's going to come a time when everyone who trusts in Christ will see with our eyes the victory of God's love. We won't have to imagine it or cling to it by faith. We'll see it. And when we see it, we will say, this is better than we expected. This is far better than we deserved. This is better than anything we dreamed of or asked for or could have imagined. We will experience something so good when God's love triumphs in the world that all the pain of this life, including the most difficult stuff that makes it hard for us to believe that God loves us, all of that will seem small by comparison to the joy we will experience when God's love triumphs. And I'm not saying that on my own authority. Just listen to the voice of Scripture. Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He has seen enough of what it's going to be like when God's love triumphs that he could call his present suffering light and momentary. And Paul has just finished listing some of his suffering. He's been imprisoned. He's been beaten. He's been abandoned. He's been slandered. I mean, he's experienced profound suffering, but he says it's like nothing compared to the massive joy we will experience. Or you could think about Isaiah 66. It's a text that lies behind the text we just heard in Revelation 21 and 22. Isaiah 66 speaks of God ushering in his new creation. And verse 17 says this. It's God speaking. And he says, look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. I don't think it probably means that we'll literally forget. I think what it means is all the pains of our past will seem so vanishingly small to us then that we won't bother with it except as a reminder of how far God's grace has brought us. When we see the new creation that Isaiah and Paul and the book of Revelation are talking about, we will agree with Julian of Norwich. You remember I told you about Julian of Norwich seven weeks ago? She spent a lot of time 
seeking God's face in prayer. And in the midst of her deep physical and spiritual agony, she came to God in faith saying, how could you let there be so much evil in the world? And she had an experience of Jesus coming near to her tenderly and talking to her about how he's going to heal everything. And this experience of God's love in the midst of her pain and desolation led her to a place that even while she was waiting, she could say with confidence, all shall be well and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. We're going to agree with that. There will be no more doubts. There will be no more complaints. Today, what I want to do is invite you to think with me about the joy that disciples of Jesus will experience with Jesus when he returns to make all things new. We're going to meditate on some of the soul-stirring images at the end of the Bible And I want to have, as a banner over this sermon, the the title, which I think is on the screen behind me, When Love is All in All. Now that phrase is trying to put together two biblical phrases. One of them is from 1 John 4.16, which we've said a lot in the last seven weeks. Everybody say, God is love. That's 1 John 4.16. But 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the resurrection movement that began when Jesus burst out of the tomb, having defeated sin and Satan and death for us. And it says that Jesus is going to continue until all the evil and death that mar our existence have submitted to the feet of Jesus. And then he's going to bring a perfected creation to his Father. And then the end of the verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight says that God may be all in all. God is love. And there's coming a day when God's love is going to so triumph in the world that God will be all and in all. God is going to fill all things. The world is going to shine with the glory and the love of God. And if we want to be people who know how to abide in God's love so that we can be filled with joy and grace and kindness and truth, even in the midst of persecution and difficulty, we need to be people who think about that future, who meditate on it, and so that we can become a people of hope. Hope's a key word today. Everybody say hope. We need hope if we're going to be able to persevere in the Christian life. So right now what I want to do is to invite you to pray with me. Because when we start reading these truths of Scripture, they are true, but sometimes it's hard for us to feel like it's real. It just feels so foreign from our experience. I don't know about you. I've had a lot of times in my life, though, where there was something that everybody told me was going to happen that I felt like would never happen, and then it happened. Anybody else had that? Like... Felt like you were never going to get out of high school. Then boom, you graduated. (laughs) For good or ill, there's life, right? Or you you may not have graduated. You got out of there one way or another. I felt like I was never going to be married. And then it happened. There's a whole lot of things that happen. Right now, I feel like I'm not really going to die, yet it's going to happen, right? Our feelings are often not accurate predictors of the future. And if it feels like what this text of Scripture is describing is fantastic, Just think about the universe that you already live in. Did you ever have that experience as a kid? You looked up at the stars and thought, this is amazing. It had to come from somewhere. Ever had that feeling? Now that intuition was right and it was rational. This finite contingent universe could never explain its own existence. And if it's a finite contingent multiverse, that could also never explain its existence. It must come from an infinite, eternal ground of being and that's God. And if that God created this universe, and if that God who is good is capable of making all this beauty, and yet there's so much evil in this world, it would be absurd to think that it would be able to continue like this forever. 
Moreover, there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived among us and claimed to be that creator in the flesh, said he was going to die and rise again, then died and rose again. And he's the one who told us this is how the story is going to end. So we can know it's true. We're going to need God's help to believe that it's real and to let it shape our hearts and our imaginations. You hear me on that? So let's bow our heads. And I want to invite you where you are just to pray a simple prayer. Holy Spirit of God, help me to see the truth and to know its reality in the depths of my soul. Just pray that God will help you to hear his word with faith today. Our Father, I want to pray now for us collectively what I just urge everybody to pray for ourselves. Help us to hear your word. Help us to believe it. Help us to understand it. Help us to remember it. Help us to feel the reality. Lord, I can't do that for myself, much less for anybody else. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. Let the hope of the gospel so move us today that we would love Jesus and hate sin and persevere in the life of faith. Let every word of my mouth be true and right and faithful and pleasing to you and helpful to all who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're about to dive into meditating on the images at the end of Revelation, but first thing to note from the beginning, you may have noticed the book of Revelation is difficult to interpret. And if you study the history of Christianity, you will find really smart people in every generation of Christians explaining what they think the book of Revelation means and then turning out to be wrong. It's happened over and over. And if you Google what does some certain passage of Revelation mean, there's going to be some crazy stuff on the Internet, okay? Um, and on YouTube especially. So, and if you walk around on Southside and talk to people about the book of Revelation, they're going to tell you some theories that they're very confident of that are a little wild and out there. So here's something we need to note from the beginning. The book of Revelation is filled with symbols and images which are coming from a particular uh, apocalyptic tradition of Jewish thought. Uh, The word apocalypse just means unveiling. So the idea is that God is unveiling for us spiritual realities about the present and the future that we could not see. And if we want to understand those symbols and images We need to understand them in the light of the scripture and the first century, not whatever happens to be in the newspaper in the 21st century. You feel me? So you got to be careful about not misinterpreting this book, which is a great American pastime. So everybody turn to your neighbor and say, be careful. Um, why, Why then does this book use symbols and images? I want to suggest to you at least two reasons. First, I think symbols and images are probably the best way to point us in the direction of realities that are beyond our comprehension. What the people of God will experience when Jesus actually comes back is something so awesome and beautiful and good that we're not capable of fully understanding it. So images then become a kind of signposts that point us to the reality in a way that gets us in touch with the truth, but we can always know that the reality when Jesus brings it to pass will be something bigger and more beautiful and greater than we're capable of understanding at present. Second reason is this. Symbols and images work on us at the level of our hearts and imaginations. In fact, a sanctified imagination is an important part of living with hope. And when I talk about imagination, I'm not talking about playing pretend. 
I'm not talking about fiction or fantasy or wishful thinking. I'm saying God has given us a capacity to envision things, to have a picture in our mind. And God is a really good teacher, which is why throughout the Bible, he gives us images and says, picture this, picture this. And those images have an ability to work on us at the level of our hearts and emotions, because we don't just need to know this in our heads, we need to know it in our hearts. So there's images here. Now let's talk about what are the images that are going on in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. First, let me summarize it, then I'll look at a few details. Here's the picture in all those verses you just read. These images point everybody who trusts in Christ towards the reality of a future in which we will enjoy perfect, unending, joyful union with God. Perfect, joyful relationship with God and with redeemed humanity in the midst of a new creation. That's a key word. Everybody say new creation which has at its center a great garden city. We're going to talk about what that means in a second. A great garden city. And when we experience that perfect union with God and a new creation, and union with other people in this new creation, which has at its center a great garden city, our souls will be healed. Our bodies will be raised immortal. And all of our human potential will be fully realized for God's glory and our eternal happiness. That's the picture. Now let's look at some of the details. First detail to notice is this. The best part of the picture is our union with God. We will experience deep, intimate, loving fellowship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a way that will satisfy our souls more deeply than we can ever imagine that they could be satisfied. The best part about heaven, about the new creation, is God. If God wasn't there, everything else would be boring. We've quoted often the statement of St. Augustine that God made us for himself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in God, and that's what we're going to experience. Let me show you how often this text emphasizes this point. Look at 21 verse 3. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God will be with us in a way that's deeper than the deepest experiences we have of his presence in this life. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Skip down to verse 27, chapter 20, uh, sorry, verse 7, chapter 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Now, you might circle that word conquers. That's an important word in the book of Revelation, and it just means the one who perseveres in faith. When, when life gets difficult, when following Jesus gets difficult, they don't give up. They keep trusting Christ. The one who conquers, who perseveres in faith, will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And you can write in, or daughter, if you want to, because it'll work for either one. The picture is God will be with us and we will be his and we will be known as his beloved children. He'll love us more deeply than any human parent has ever loved any human child. And everyone will know that we are his forever. Skip down to 21 verses 22 through 23. Now we're inside the city, the garden city. And it says, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus, the Son of God who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins and then rose again. We will be with God, the Father and the Son. His 
light will fill our lives with joy and peace and truth. Chapter 22, starting in the middle of verse 3, says this, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Might underline that. That's like some of the best news in the Bible. They will see the face of Jesus. And his name will be on their foreheads. That means we'll be marked forever. This one belongs to Jesus. This one belongs to God. They will worship him. Just think for a second about those fleeting moments in which you felt closest to God. Anybody here ever had a moment that you really felt like God loved you and you felt close to him? And it doesn't last forever. You want it to last forever. Maybe you're in a room by yourself reading the Bible and it just hits you in a different way and you know he's real. Maybe it's at corporate worship and the music's rising and you just sense God's presence with you. Maybe you've had a moment out in nature on a mountain looking out and you're like, God is good. But take those moments where you felt closer to God than any other moment then infin- uh, multiply that by 20 trillion and then make it last forever and that will be not as good as what it's talking about here. That's what it's saying. There's an experience of closeness of God that we long for and when we get it, even in this life, we think, man, why do I stress about everything else? But there we're going to have it infinitely beyond anything we tasted in this life. The center of, it, of this experience is union with God Second point, though, is when we enjoy this union with God, our individual souls and our relationships will be healed and perfected. Doesn't that sound awesome? I get so tired of repenting of sin. Anybody else tired of being a person dealing with indwelling sin? Anybody else tired of living in a world where there's so many broken relationships, you keep working on healing them and praying for their healing? We've already said... We're going to be publicly identified as beloved children of God. We read that verse. And his name's going to be written on his forehead. That right there already means it's the end of all shame and social anxiety forever. Glory to God. How can you feel ashamed or feel socially anxious when everywhere you go, God's like, that's my daughter, that's my son, my name's on the forehead, right? No more shame, no more social anxiety. I love the image at the beginning of chapter 21, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, of course, this is talking about God healing our souls. Trauma will not have the last word in God's new creation. All the wounds of our past will be gone forever. All of our griefs will experience the comfort of God in a way that will be perfect beyond any comfort we can experience in this life. But I love that it says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I was trying to remember this when we... When was the last time somebody wiped a tear from my eye? Like that physical act is an intimate act. I think I was probably a baby. But this is the God that we serve. Remember a few weeks ago when we studied John 13 and heard about Jesus getting down on his knees to take the feet of his disciples in his hands and clean them? You know, Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have just said, be clean, and the feet are clean. Right? And God could just say, be happy. But that's not what the text says. This is a text of the almighty, infinite creator coming close, close. It's a tender image, an intimate image. He will wipe the tears from our eyes. We're going to know it's going to be okay. Some of y'all have kids, and you know it's like when they fall and they hurt themselves and they're feeling terrible and they're crying out of control and you pick them up and you hug them and you kiss them and all of a sudden they feel better. Now, did you just 
change their nerves? Did the pain go away? No. But there's a love now which is bigger and deeper that they're experiencing. Larry Crabb, the counselor, said the experience of knowing God's love is like that. It's going to be an embrace which is deeper and sweeter and more intimate so that all of our sorrows will fade. Look at chapter 22, verse 5, the last phrase in your bulletin. How's this for thinking about what our experience of being human will be like? They will reign forever and ever. They here is all of us who trust in Christ. They will reign forever and ever. Every redeemed human being is going to reign with God in the new creation. What does that mean? Well, we just said a minute ago that the picture here is a picture of a new creation. At its center is a garden city, but that's not the whole new creation. There's a river flowing out from the garden city to bring healing to the nations. There's nations bringing their wealth into the garden city. The idea here is there's a dynamic, created life that we're experiencing, not as we're zapped out of earth to heaven, but as we experience the reconciliation of heaven and earth. So that now we're living an embodied existence, which is like the Garden of Eden, but way better because Eden was the nursery, and we never got to see what mature humanity would have looked like without sin. And now there's going to be a day where our human capacities, our creativity, and our human powers is brought to its fulfillment for God's glory and our joy forever. So that we can exercise our creative stewardship within God's world in a way that's free from boredom, free from futility. Anybody ever been working on a paper for a long time and your computer crashes? And that's like what all of life is like, right? In Ecclesiastes, we learn that time is like a toddler, that you build something up and it comes and knocks it down. And that's, that's our experience right now. But then we'll have this capacity for powerful creative stewardship that's free from futility or sin or exhaustion or failure. Some of you that are trying to understand yourselves, this is the clue to who you are. Artists and musicians, why are you artists and musicians? Because God made you to make beauty forever. And why is it frustrating? Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. All your songs will be awesome then. That's what it's saying. If you love making poems and stories, it's because you were made to reign as a sub-creator in God's new creation. Architects and engineers and interior designers, this is what you were made for. I was thinking also about all of you who like to play with Legos. I got some kids that like to do that. Or Minecraft or Sims. That's what you like. Why do you like that? Because you're longing for a world to exercise powerful creative stewardship without the limitations of this feudal existence, right? If you feel happy when you look at a thriving garden that you planted or look at a lawn that you just mowed, this is why you were made to reign with the fullness of your human capacities being exercised creatively for the glory of God. And this should clue us into the fact that What I've said about our identity so far is trying to indicate actually the most important thing about our identity is perhaps what we'll all share in common. It'll be true for all of us that we're loved by God, we're children of God. He is our king and we are his people, but it's also true that this is the time where you find out who you really were as an individual. If you've got a Bible, you might just flip over to Revelation chapter 2 and look at verse 17. Look what Jesus says there. He says, to the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna. We're going to skip that scene, uh, symbol because I want to talk about the next symbol. And I will give him a white stone. You need to think about this white stone. Everybody say the white stone. If you persevere following Jesus, 
and you conquer, he's going to give you a white stone. What's the white stone? It says, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So on your forehead is written God's name, so everybody knows you're his, but on your white stone is the truth about your identity, who God always made you to be, that neither you nor everybody else fully understood in this life. You'll become fully yourself. The picture is saying we'll be with God, experiencing the joy of fellowship with him, and our souls will be healed, and our bodies will be healed, and our relationships will be healed. Now let's go on to add this. We will enjoy this union with God and this perfection of our own humanity within the context of an entirely renovated and fulfilled creation consisting of both a new heaven and a new earth. Some of us have some ways of thinking that don't quite line up with the Bible that we got to think about for a second. The earth was made by God and we live there as his image bearers and stewards. The, The heavenly realm in the scripture is the realm of God's throne from which his reign and his presence break into the earth. It's the realm of angels, but in the scriptures, it's also a realm of conflict. Revelation has talked about war in heaven. The reason why Ephesians 1.10 says that everything needs to be reconciled in heaven is because Ephesians 6 says there are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, meaning the rebellion of humans and of demons is a rebellion which is creating chaos in both the heavenly realm, the unseen spiritual realm, and the earthly realm. And those two intersect. But what's happening right now is the heavens are perfected, demons are judged and cast out forever, and the earth is perfected, and the two are reconciled and become completely one. That's the picture. God's creation is going to be healed and perfected. One of the things that means is all the bad things that we don't like about this life are going to be gone. Just, just track with me through the passage. Let me show you some of the things where it says the bad stuff is going to be gone. No more death, chaos, fear, or pain. Look at 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and earth, new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now some of you are like, wait a minute, the sea is not something I don't like. I like going to the beach. But you've got to understand, in the Bible, the sea is consistently a symbol for chaos. It's a symbol for chaos. What is chaos? It's forces that are outside of human control. They're not outside of God's control, but they're outside of human control, and they threaten our lives. So think about all throughout the Psalms, you hear this language about the floods are rising and I'm sinking, but then it talks about God gathers up the waters in a heap, okay? The, the, the sea is a symbol for chaos. The sea is car accidents. The sea is cancer. The sea is pandemics. That's the sea. It says all that destructive chaos is gone forever. Look down to verse 4. We already read the beautiful image in the first part of the verse. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then it says, and death shall be no more. Won't that be awesome? I know there's a lot of people in this room who lost someone close to you in the last year or two. If they're in Christ, there will be many happy reunions. But we hate the separated in between. It says that's going to be gone forever. No more the humiliation of our bodies breaking down, reminding us of our sin. No more death. Neither shall there be mourning. You won't need to grieve anymore. Right now we can grieve and Jesus grieves with us, but we grieve with hope. Then we won't need to grieve at all because we'll be reunited to all those loved ones. Nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All that bad stuff is gone. Skip down to chapter 21, verse 25. 
talking about the city, it says, its gates will never be shut by day. There's two things going on there. The reason that ancient cities shut their gates is uh, to keep the bad guys out, to keep the danger out. But there's no more danger. Safety and security forever. No more danger. But the shutting of the gate also keeps foreigners out. But here, all of the redeemed are welcomed in from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So there's no more exclusion. There's no more alienation. There's no more danger. And then the second uh, part of the verse says, and there will be no more night there. Again, in, in, Bible, in the Bible, night is very often a symbol of chaos and darkness and danger. Look, look down at chapter 21, verse 27. It says, nothing unclean will ever enter, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Listen, God in His grace and mercy and love is seeking and pursuing sinners and drawing people to Himself and saying to any of us in this room, if you'll trust in Jesus Christ, I'll cleanse you and you can live with me forever. But there are people who are resisting God's love and saying, no, I want to control, I want to dominate. And they're going to continue to try and hurt people forever unless God stops them. And God is saying, I'm going to stop them. Evil and people who persistently reject God's grace and choose evil will not be allowed to hold the joy of God's creation hostage forever. It won't happen. Everything unclean and accursed is going to be no more. Chapter 22, verse 3, just says it simply, no longer will there be anything accursed. We didn't have time to look at all the verses about judgment. The, the idea of being outside of this reality, of being outside of union with God and union with people, of the rejection of God being final, is a horrible thought. It should make any of us tremble and long for all of us to turn from sin and trust in Christ. But this is saying, all of that evil, all of that pain, all of that grief, It's done forever. But that's not all. Because as the text describes this new reality, it also tells us not just that the bad parts of this good creation are going to be gone, but that some of the good parts won't be needed anymore because they were signposts pointing towards something better. And now we're going to get the reality. What do I mean? Well, the first earth had a temple, and actually the book of Revelation suggests that the first heaven had a temple, but they'll both be gone. Why? You don't need the temple. The temple was the place where God's glory and presence were most fully manifest, but now that's everywhere. The Bible frequently celebrates the sun and the moon as good gifts of God that declare His glory, but they won't be needed anymore. Again, it's speaking in symbols and images, but the point is, so much of this life, even the good stuff right now, is pointing us towards a deeper reality, a better reality. What we're experiencing now is a pale shadow of something solid beyond what we can now grasp. N.T. Wright puts it like this, the whole of Christian theology is based on the goodness of creation, and yet the goodness of creation consists partly in this, that it points beyond itself to the new creation. I'm helped to think about this by the last of the Narnia books. Anybody read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, there's this great scene at the end of the last battle in which the characters, the good guy characters, uh, die. And they're sort of slowly figuring out that they die. And they're looking at Aslan's country, which is like the new creation we're talking about. And there's a moment where Runewit, who is a noble character, is standing on the threshold of that new creation looking in. And as they're all looking in, they're starting to notice that they recognize parts of Aslan's country. It's like, oh, there's London. Oh, there's, they're seeing these cities, but it's bigger and better. 
It's kind of like asking us to imagine, oh, there's what Oklahoma City was always supposed to be like over all of its decades, but it's bigger and more beautiful than anything we can imagine. And then all of a sudden, Runewit just gets excited. And he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And then he turned to all his friends and says, come further up, come further in. That's what the gospel is saying to us. Now, we could keep going for a long time. We don't have time to unpack everything that's here, but let me say a few words about the Garden City. There's something beautiful and enticing about a great garden, I think. Do you agree? Anybody like gardens? There's also something beautiful and enticing about a great city. Anybody like going to big cities to visit? Both are important in the Bible. The Garden of Eden is a very important garden, and Jerusalem is the city of God in the Bible. Both of those are being brought together here. A garden is a place of peace, beauty, and simplicity. A garden is a place where the vibrant life of nature is cultivated in a way that is simultaneously well-ordered and full of surprises. That's what the Garden of Eden is like. It's not like a little garden. It's like a national park, but better than any we can imagine. And the Garden of Eden shows up here in this scene. Think of the river flowing through the middle of the city. And chapter 22, verse 2, explicitly mentions the tree of life. Remember that tree? When, when human beings rebelled against God at the beginning of the Bible, God took away from them the tree of life because it would be horrible to keep living forever like this in our sinful condition. Can you imagine how many regrets and how much bitterness and how many broken relationships you could accumulate continuing in the present sinful condition for 5,000 years? God, in his mercy, did not let fallen sinful immortality become the lot of all human beings. But now, we're talking about a picture in which souls have been perfected. And everybody's able to eat from that tree of life and participate in the peace of the garden. What about cities? Well, in the ancient world, cities were, above all, places of safety. You're safe from wild animals. You're safe from criminals. You're safe from invaders because there's a wall and there's security and there's strength in numbers. But it wasn't just a place of safety. It was also a place of shared values and community and culture. In the Bible, Jerusalem, as I've said, is the city of God, which is supposed to show what redeemed human culture can look like. But the problem is that Jerusalem often ends up looking like Babylon, which is the anti-God city. At this moment, Babylon has been judged, and now Jerusalem has been perfected and redeemed by God's grace. In this world, we may like some things about gardens and some things about cities, but neither can give us perfect, lasting satisfaction. But we're talking about a new creation which has at its center a perfect garden city, which will be a place of peace and a place of joy and a place of culture and a place of creativity. If you want to hear what I'm saying about the culture and the creativity, look real quick at chapter 22, verses 24 through 26. It says, by, it says this, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Did you notice here it's talking about the new creation and it's using language about nations and cultures and civilizations and kings? This is not a flat, static reality without 
the fullness of our humanity being expressed. It's a rich, multi-layered, multi-textured, multi-ethnic, multicultural reality in which human beings are fulfilling our God-given capacity as culture makers and bringing it into the presence of God for his glory. So that all the best stuff, what does it mean? I don't know for sure. It's a symbol and it's an image, but I think it means we get to eat all of everybody's food and it's really good for all of us. It tastes better. I think it means we get all the kinds of music. You can have your opera, you can have your jazz, you can have whatever you want to, and it's all being consecrated for the glory of God. I think it's talking about literature and art and all the rich diversity of our human traditions cleansed of everything that is evil and idolatrous and oppressive about them and brought to God for his glory. What it definitely means is that everybody on the earth is worshiping God with all of their human capacities. To sum it all up, all of our deepest desires will be satisfied. That's how you sum it up. You can see it in the image in chapter 21, verse 6, second half of the verse. Look what God says to us. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We could say what I said a second ago a bit more fully. All of our deepest desires will be satisfied by the fullness of God's life. That's what the text is saying. The person who helped me to imagine this, maybe more than any other so far, is Anselm of Canterbury. He was born about 1033, about a thousand years ago. And one of his most famous texts ends with a reflection about what it's going to be like to live with God in his new creation. It's kind of long, so I'm not going to read to you most of it, but I can paraphrase a little bit of it. He starts listing all the things in this life that make us happy. Say, do you like this? It's going to be better there. You like that? It's going to be better than there. Let me summarize some of his list. He says, if beauty delights you, and then he lists all the natural beauty. And I think we could say art and culture as well. If beauty delights you, there's going to be more beauty there. He says, if swiftness of endurance or freedom of body, which not with can, can withstand, delights you. Translate that. If you like sports, here's what he's saying. He says, just imagine resurrected bodies. This is St. Anselm of Canterbury. He spent his whole life praying in a monastery and thinking. And he's saying, hey, look, if you like sports, just wait. This is my paraphrase. It's a bit loose. If it is a long and healthy life that pleases you, he talks about eternal health. If it is satisfaction of hunger, if it is quenching of thirst, he talks about, think about all those images of feasting in the Bible. If it is melody that likes you, Anselm says, wait till you hear the angels singing. I would add, wait till you hear all those cultures bringing their artistic gifts together, consecrated to God. If it is wisdom that delights you, meaning if, like me, you overspend your book budget every month, you're one of those people. The capacity to have minds illuminated by the uncreated light of God's wisdom there is beyond anything we could imagine. And the capacity to continually learn and meditate upon the riches of God reflected in his creation. He says, if friendship delights you, imagine the most intimate friendship possible with God and with other redeemed human beings and with angels. Anselm says, don't stop with God and human beings. Can you imagine becoming friends with the archangel Michael? If concord, that means, he means unity. If that's what likes you, there's going to be perfect unity there forever. If power delights you, he doesn't shy away from saying, you're going to receive redeemed, empowered image of God like you've only ever imagined here. 
He says, if honor and riches like delight you, then he goes on and describes, listen, in, in the new creation, we're going to be bringing glory to God, but the Bible doesn't blush from saying God's going to be sharing his glory and honor with us. Which means, if you're driven by an idolatrous desire for honor, repent of that, but recognize that yearning in you is the seed of something greater, which is seeking the true greatness that consists of living for the glory of God and sharing in his glory. He goes on to say, if true security delights you, and he describes, there's actually a long paragraph in which he describes safety and security forever. This made me think, sometimes those of us in the room who really love security and comfort and are kind of risk averse, the gospel really challenges us to lay down, because that, that love for comfort and security can easily become an idol in this life. But that's saying for you also, if you love comfort and security, uh, he's saying that is also a seed of longing in you. And in this life, you're often going to have to die to that impulse out of trust in Christ and his gospel. But that is in you a signpost that you were made for a different world in which there's perfect comfort and perfect security forever. He says, if it is any not impure but pure pleasure, God shall make them drink of the river of his pleasures. He's saying every pure desire will be satisfied. And by the way, he would also say every impure desire is just a pure desire that got twisted in such a way that it could never be satisfied. So God's going to untwist that thing and then satisfy it. But Anselm doesn't stop there. He says, heart of man, needy heart, heart acquainted with sorrows, nay, overwhelmed with sorrows, how greatly would you rejoice if you did abound in all these things? If you were experiencing right now everything we just said, wouldn't you be happy? That's what Anselm is saying. He says, ask your inmost mind whether it could contain its joy over so great a blessedness of its own. But he doesn't stop there. He says, yet assuredly, if any other whom, di whom you did love altogether as yourself possessed the same blessedness, your joy would be doubled because you would rejoice not less for him than for yourself. In other words, you may have had the experience where if you have a child or a parent or brother or sister or friend that you really love and they succeed and you're at least as happy as they are. You ever had that experience? So he says, if another person experiences all that joy, your joy is doubled. Now he says, think about this. But if two or three or many more had the same joy, you would rejoice as much for each one as for yourself, if you did love each one of yourself. Hence, in that perfect love of innumerable blessed angels and sainted men, whom none shall love, another less than himself, everyone shall rejoice for each other of the others as for himself. Now that was a little confusing, but here's what he said. He said, I just told you, every personal longing you have will be satisfied. Now think about this. You've already tasted in this life that if you really love somebody and they become happy, you share in their happiness and it's doubled. Now you've got double happiness. He says, but in that time, you're going to love billions of human beings and billions of angels just as much as you love yourself, which means the perfect happiness you can envision in this life times trillions will help you to start getting the picture. But he doesn't stop there. He says, if then the heart of man can scarce contain his joy over his own good so great, how shall it contain so many and so great joys? And doubtless, seeing that everyone loves another so far as he rejoices in the other's good, and as in that perfect happiness, each one should love God beyond compare, more than himself, and all the others with him, so he will rejoice beyond reckoning in the happiness of God, more than in his own and that of all others with him, all the soul shall not suffice for the fullness of their joy.
What is he saying? He's saying when love becomes all in all, you will share in the unlimited happiness of yourself and of every human being and of every angel and of the infinite happiness of God, which will continually flood your soul because your soul will never be big enough to hold it. That's the new creation. Now I'm done, but before I sit down, let me just ask you, what good does it do us to think about such things? What good does it do for us? I'd suggest a couple things. One, it rekindles our joy and gratitude and hope. If you weren't feeling thankful when you came here, I hope you're feeling thankful now. If not, Holy Spirit, help us. Because we've been talking about some awesome promises of God. Maybe we should just shout it out. Everybody say, thank you, God. This rekindles our joy and our gratitude and hope. It also helps us see the ugliness of sin and turn from it. Why would you want to sin if that's what you were made for? Why would you want to sin? Why would you want these little unsatisfying pleasures that are shrinking your soul so that its capacity for joy is diminished? Why not turn from sin and turn to God? I'd say thinking about this also makes us willing to risk and sacrifice for the glory of God and the good of others because I'm not scared about being criticized or misunderstood or suffering or dying if that's what I'm going to experience forever. Okay? It frees us from slavery to fear. In short, it makes us more like Jesus, which is what 1 John 3, 3 says. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he himself is pure. You set your hope on these promises of God and Christ, the triumph of his love, it'll make you more like Jesus. So if you're here today and you haven't trusted Jesus, just hear me pleading with you now. God loves you. God loves you. He wants to forgive your sins. If you will trust in Christ today, give him your heart. Call on him to come into your life. He will do that. And that'll be the first step on a journey that leads in the new creation. And for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, I have a question for you to ponder with the help of the Holy Spirit this week. What can you do? What can you do practically in your life to set your hopes more fully on the grace you will receive when Jesus comes back? How can you train your mind and your imagination and your heart to set your hope fully on that grace so that we together can become a people of hope? That question in our minds, let's pray. Our Father, the, the realities that we've been talking about truly are too great for us. They're far beyond anything we could deserve. They're really beyond anything we can understand as well. So I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Now at the end of the sermon, as we ask at the beginning, help us to see Christ and to believe these promises. Let our imaginations be empowered by grace to see the beauty of your new creation, the triumph of your love. And let that hope and the future triumph of your love make us people of great courage and great peace who live for your glory. As we come to the Lord's table now, I pray that you would not only help us to remember the past, the body and blood of Christ on the cross, which makes it possible for us to be reconciled to you, but also to look forward to the future in which we share in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Make us a people of hope. And if there's anyone here who hasn't trusted Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would call them to Christ right now. In Jesus' name, amen.